all throughout scripture, it talks about us being the voice to those that are fatherless. And so I wanted to start off just by showing that video and just let us get a glimpse of the Father's heart for those who would be considered orphan. For me, it's very dear to my heart. Um, and many of you know our family's story um, and how God called us to, to adoption. And I just pray that our church would be advocates for those who are in need, who would be considered orphan in this world. And there's so many in our midst, in, in, in our uh, county, that need someone to just simply advocate for them. And I'm not saying that every single person in this world or in this room has to go out and adopt. But every one of us are called to be advocates for them. If the church won't do it, who will? Who will? I pray that we, we would. And so today I'm going to share a little bit about Orphans, uh, Orphans Sunday. And um, to be honest, I, I've had this prepared for, for months. Um, but God changed my heart a little bit. You will still see in this, um, this sermon the heart of God for orphans. But the heart of God also breaks for a lot of many things. And so I hope that you see, see that in this, this sermon as well. And so just to do a little recap, um, recap on, on Jesus for President. This series, I think, is, is very timely. We will look back on this series and probably listen to it over and over again. When we talk about Jesus politics, we will need to go and reread scripture when it comes to the politics of Jesus over and over again. And I think that what Pastor Anthony preached will, will help us in the future. Not I'm not just talking about these next four years. I'm talking about till the end of time. The politics of Jesus was good on Monday just as much as it is on Tuesday of this week. And so I, I want to just start off by just speaking a little bit from my heart. Um, many years ago, I prayed, I prayed a very dangerous prayer. Probably the most dangerous prayer I've ever prayed. And I pray it daily. Sometimes I start my day with it. Sometimes I pray it continuously. It's a very dangerous prayer. And most of y'all have probably heard this prayer because I pray it um, just in my prayer time. And it just kind of comes out. Many years ago I prayed this prayer. God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. I hope that we can do that today. Can we pray a dangerous prayer together? 
God, break our hearts for what breaks yours. In Jesus' name, amen. So this political season has been a difficult one, to say the least. It has brought about a whole lot in our society. It's brought out things in people that we haven't seen for many, many years. It has shown the cowardness of a lot of people's heart as well. It has shown the malice that's deeply rooted in individuals, both that are running for politics, right, but also within our friends and our family and even our enemies. And so (laughs) I approach this sermon and I'm like, man, why in the world is Pastor Anthony away during this time? I'm like, come on. I have to follow this this week. What do I have to say? And I remember Monday and Tuesday, and even the weeks leading up to this past week, my news feed on my Twitter, my news feed on my Facebook account has been crazy. You know, I have a pretty diverse group group of followers and people that I follow on, on both Twitter and Facebook. And it was so divided. I saw so much friction. I saw people say things that I think that they will regret. I really do. And for me, I'm seeing that. And I had to just break free from it. I turned it off. I didn't really check in a whole lot on Facebook. Occasionally I would, and then I would be like, and that's why I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) You know, the emotions that were in everyone just continued to come out throughout the week. And I had emotions too, of course, and they were coming out of me as well. And I was broken because I think that God, God's heart was broken. Not because of the the presidential elect that we we chose as a nation. Not necessarily. But more so because of the hearts of the people. The hearts of the people of our nation. I think that God broke because of that. And for me... uh, What really brought a burden to me was what I saw of the church. See, for me, like the way that I view the world, I don't hold the world to account for a lot of things. But when it comes to the church, I look at that differently. Because for the world, for them to do things that would be considered sin in the eyes of God... Like, they should. They don't know better. For until they know and hear the word of God. Until they know and hear the gospel message. So for me, I'm like, you know, my friends that I know are living living out of the world. I'm like, they're just doing what they know. But then I see my Christian brothers and sisters 
both black, white, Asian, Hispanic, brothers and sisters, and the way that they were behaving on social media and out and about as I encountered them, it broke my heart. It broke my heart to see how divided our nation is, how malice our nation is, and how out of hand we can get. And sadly, especially speaking from a white Christian, looking at my other white brothers and sisters in Christ that I encounter daily, that I work with, that I play with, that I um, interact with on social media, I saw a lot of them that were not conscious of what was going on. They would say things that I'm like, you're saying that because you aren't aware of things that are going on. You're responding to a surface issue that is deeply rooted in a lot of things that bring about hate in this world, that bring about pain in this world. And so I battled all week long. How am I going to communicate my lament but also be respectful for democracy? And to be honest, it's been some of the hardest things for me. Because yes, I am in lament. Because I know how this political season, how it affects those that are the vulnerable. How it affects those who some would say don't have a voice in our society. I know how it affects those who have been crying out in the wilderness for so long. And so for me, I, I've been like stuck in the middle. Like, what do I do? What do you do? And I feel like throughout history, there has been many people that has been in that, that way. And many Christians, especially, that has been in the middle of politics, trying to figure out how to navigate through this journey of life while being conscious of those that's, li that's living in their community and speaking out and being an advocate for them. And so for me, I saw fear. I saw so many fears coming out of so many. And to be honest, there was fears that was there no matter who it was that was going to be elected, whether it be Trump or Hillary or somebody else. I saw fears that was coming to head that has been there for centuries. And now it's starting to come out. And for us as, as Christians, we don't have to be motivated by our fears. Like fears are real. Fears are truth for many people. But our fears do not have to guide us. See, through the hope of Jesus Christ, that love of Christ can help us to do away with those fears. And I say that 
knowing the history of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Knowing the history of those that have, have got us to where we are today. And I'm not just talking about America, because Christianity is so much bigger than America. I'm talking about looking back into the history of the Christian church, how our brothers and sisters were burned at the stake and used for night lights to guide and light the, the roads in empire. Those who were burned at the stake, those who were skinned to death. But yet, if you read some of their stories, it blows my mind how they were singing hymns of praise and how they were reciting scripture as their enemies were doing harm to them. Is it easy? No. The way of Jesus is not. And so for me, I've been in the middle of this, this tension for so long. For the past several years, I've been in the middle of this tension. And I'm going to be very honest with you today. There is a tension when someone is called out to practice racial reconciliation. There is a tension that comes with it. And as I've read about how you know, when King was, was leading the charge of the civil rights movement, he heard the voices of his enemy. And yes, that concerned him, but what concerned him even more was the silence of his brothers and sisters in Christ. And a lot of that silence was those who looked very similar to me. And as I was reflecting on that and, and embracing the tension that I live in every single day. It began, I, I began to think about the stories that I've heard. And there was one particular story that came from John M. Perkins, who is a, a civil rights leader that's still alive today. He's 90-something years old now, I think. Um, and he is a, a, a pastor. Um, that is leading the charge of the Christian Community Development Association all throughout the world. And he shared whenever he was in Mississippi. And you know, after civil rights and after, you know, um, things that turned a lot um, all around our nation, there were some places around that it didn't change very easily. And Mississippi was one of them. In Mississippi in the 60s and 70s, it was a tough place to be African-American. And so he befriended this white pastor. And they were doing things together and really speaking out and calling for racial change in that, in that community. And Pastor Perkins shares about how that, that white pastor took his own life. He took his own life. Because of the tension that he was receiving from those brothers and, uh, brothers and sisters that declared to follow the way. And, and on the other sides as well. And I'm not saying that I'm going to kill myself, by the way. All right, I just wanted to, to be real there. I'm not saying that. But I also see... How easy it can fall, it, you, can, you can be trapped and fall into that. 
But I'm here to say tension is good. Tension is good. It keeps us real. Tension is good. And you know, I'm a guitarist, so I'm going to go over to my guitar here. I'm going to turn it up a little bit. All right. Tension is good. That right there, that note, is an E. That note right there is an E. And whenever I play my guitar and I pick and strum, it forms notes that creates melodies and harmonies and harmonics and all these different things that create beautiful music. But without tension, that guitar would not uh, stay together. Without tension, those strings would not work. And so for us as, as Mission House, we will go through tension. We have a call for racial reconciliation. God has called us to, to really embrace that and live that. And there will be tensions that we will have to work with. And I think that when we, when we uh, work with that and we embrace that tension and we are real with one another, we will begin to see what King died for, and that is beloved community. And so for me, all this week, I've been asking a question. As I looked at the church, and I saw all different kinds of things, I said, Lord, what is it that you require of us? What is it that you require of the church What do you require of your bride? What do you want? And I reflect back on the things that we have heard, the things that we've read, the things that we've preached. And here's some of the things that I've heard. The Lord requires us to stand up for the oppressed. To show compassion for one another. To love both friend and to love enemy as well. To be a voice for the voiceless. To defend the cause of the fatherless. To clothe the naked. To visit those in prison. To care for the widow. To welcome the stranger. To feed the hungry. To share resources. To be good stewards of those resources as well. To walk in righteousness and justice. And to love well. And I went to scripture. Saying God help me. I hear all that. And I believe it. But God, help me in your word to, to give me something to, that will help me throughout the days to come. And so today we're going to be in Micah 6. Micah, Micah 6. We're going to be reading verses 6 through 8. And you can go and you can read a lot of the, the, the details of, of the prophet Micah and what he was speaking over the, the people But in this particular time, the prophet is speaking to God's chosen people. He is speaking to the Israelites. And the Israelites were saying many things. And they were saying, well, well, what do I do? What do we do, God? What do you require? And here's what he says in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come bring before him and with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then we hear what God says to his people. He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So I want to just share a little bit about Micah. See, Micah is a prophet that um, he can relate to, to a lot of people. See, he comes from a very small town where that town started seeing a lot of prosperity. And the, the rich were becoming rich and the poor were becoming poor. And so he started seeing what was going on in, in the nations around him, in the cities around him, in the towns around him. And he saw these cities that were getting huge and the rich were becoming rich and the poor were becoming poor. And there was this divide between them. And see, this is a prophet that was, uh, he knew scripture. He was taught scripture and he was hearing from God. And God had, had done, th done things before and set things up to, to practice jubilee as a nation, as God's people. He had shown them how to take care of the widows, to take care of the orphans, to not harvest all of the, the harvest, but to leave some for those that were in need. He showed them how to welcome the stranger into their home, how to practice hospitality. And here Micah is, he sees all this going on, and he sees the nations, the cities, taking advantage of people. And he calls it out. He calls out to them. God spoke. Uh, God used Micah to speak against all different things. He spoke judgment on many cities. These cities that y'all are probably familiar with. Two of those to mention is Samaria and Jerusalem. And what did he speak of? What did he speak judgment against? He spoke this to land grabbers these you know greedy land grabbers and if you think about it it was like gentrification of their day he spoke against the false prophets that were saying things about many things and making promises that were not from god he spoke of corrupt judges and calling them to judgment for the sake of justice he spoke against the priest, how they were taking advantage of their own people. He spoke against the, the cheater, those that were violent, those that were liars, those that were deceivers, those that were thieves and murderers in their day and age. He spoke against it. So he wasn't very popular, <laughs> to say the least. He wasn't very popular for many of the nations. Because he pointed them to acknowledge and obey the ways of God. And they all didn't like it. But then here we are. Israel is, is approaching God and asking, what do I need to do? Do I need to 
provide this burnt offering here? Do I need to you know, bring this fattened calf? Do I need to give up my firstborn for my sins? And all these different things that were custom in their day and age. And it would be like us. Well, Lord, do I need to give this offering? Do I need to give my 10%? Do I need to come and worship and make sure that we have the, the best praise team and we have the uh, great pastor and I'm coming and I'm sitting under his authority and, and I am lifting him up and I'm uh, you know, feeding him when he comes over to my house. And I'm, even though I'm gone for the week, I'm giving him my tithe and uh, you know, I'm taking care of the bishop on his birthday and you know, you know all the, the, the church culture that I'm talking about. You know, we tend to, to approach God like a set of rules. This is what I need to do. Right? We need to sing that song that gets us into our, our holy dancing, right? We need that B3 organ playing behind us. Right? <laughs> All those things. But God looks at His people he looks at the Israelites. He sees all their stuff that they're doing. He looks at us as well here in 2016. He sees all the stuff that we're doing. And the remedy is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. What does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of me? What did the Lord require of Israel? What does the Lord require of the church in 2016? It's this. And for a lot of us, it might be a little bit of a surprise. The answer is, no thing at all. No thing at all. He doesn't require a thing of any one of you. He doesn't require a thing of me or you. But what he does require, the answer is clear that God, what he wants is you. What God wants is me. He doesn't want what I bring. He doesn't want what I do. He wants me. He wants you completely. And did Israel, the Israelites give him that at times? But then they fall back in their ways. For us, I think that we have given ourselves at times, but sometimes we fall back in our ways. So for us today, I think that God is reminding us, let's give ourselves completely to him. And when we do that, we will do justice. We will do ju justice. Micah shows us many examples of, of failure to do justice. If you look especially at chapter 2 and chapter 3, you'll see that the, power, the powerful were oppressing the powerless. And if you look in our day and age, that happens a lot. Does it happen in the church? Absolutely. Does it happen outside of the church? Yes, it does. You see those that were being exploited in their day. You will see laborers being taken advantage of. 
You'll see courts that are corrupt and people that are making decisions that are unjust just because they have the authority and the power to do so. So for, for us, for them in the Israelites' day and age, and for us now, to do justice means to work for the establishment of justice for all, especially for the powerless. And so for Mission House, we're not going to be a church that is clear, you know, categorized by the things that we you know, like to do. We're not going to be you know, held accountable just to you know, how good we are as a worship team and how great our preaching is. What we're going to be accountable for is who we are as individuals, who we are as a community that gathers together. And I think that we'll be known for how we do justice in this community. And I hope that for us. Edmund Burke, who was an 18th century British philosopher, once said this. The definition of evil in the world is when good men and women see injustice and do nothing. If we are truly God's people... And we see those that are powerless, those that are oppressed, those that are marginalized, those that are voiceless in our community, and we do absolutely nothing, it's a sin. It's a sin. To take it another way, when it comes to caring for the people on God's heart, indifference is a sin. I'll repeat that. When it comes to caring for the people on God's heart, indifference is a sin. Martin Luther King Jr. says, In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. So for us to be completely God's, when God's heart breaks, our heart should break as well. And what it should lead to is justice. For us to practice justice in our day. Then it also should lead to love mercy. To love kindness. I think it's pretty amazing. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of things in, in, that happen in our day and age. And we celebrate all kinds of things. You know, you got National Dog Day. National Friend Day. National Coffee Day. National Fried Chicken Day. Whatever it may be. There's a national day of anything. You know what today is? National Kindness Day. I found out at 11 o'clock last night. Yeah. How crazy is that? So on National Kindness Day or World Kindness Day, we're reminded to love mercy, to love kindness. So what does that mean in this passage? What does it mean to, to love kindness? The word there in the Hebrew is he said, H-E-S-E-D, which means to love with a strong element of loyalty, such as between a husband and wife or really close friends. There's that loyal love, that steadfast love between them. You know, whenever it comes to our relationship with God, it means that love, loyalty, that steadfast love that brings us together where we're loyal to each other and loyal to God. And so whenever it says to love 
mercy, to love kindness. It means to love loyalty, to be loyal to one another. And so loyalty is to the way of Jesus, not loyalty to the American way. Loyalty to the way of Jesus, the way of the Lord, not loyalty to the American dream. Because I've said it before, some American dream is another person's American nightmare. Right? Empire can only take us so far. The way of Jesus will take us to complete unity. And so for us, we need to, to be loyal to each other in a way that's not just the American way, but the way that Jesus talked about. The way of Jubilee, taking care of one another. So for me, I have a call to be loyal to God. And I also have a call to be loyal to my family. And then I have a call to be loyal to you. In that order. Pastor Anthony has that same call. In that order. God, family, church. You know, some people in this day and age do not have their loyalty in order. Where is your loyalty lie? Does, is it found in your job? Before your family? Where does your loyalty lie? Is it to your own personal pleasures? Before God? I hope not. So to share a little bit about our heart and how God has, has called us as a family. Many years ago, you know, I, I prayed that prayer. God, break my heart for what breaks yours. So God called me and, me and Hannah out. See, we were, we were involved in a church. We were raised in, in doing a lot of church work. Okay? Hannah was pretty much born and sanctified at birth, I think. Uh, uh, she is amazing, okay? Um, y'all be sure to tell her that I said that, okay? <laughs> um, but we were doing a lot of the things that typical churchgoers were doing, typical pastors were doing. Our ministries were growing, but God called us out when I said, break my heart for what breaks yours. He had me doing things um, in scripture where I was reading things repetitively, and I still do this, but at that point in time, I was reading things uh, like a certain book every month over and over and over again. And so at this, this time in my life, I was reading the book of James. And James, I love that little small book, and so it's so small that I could read it like in a day, easy. In a few hours, well, not even an hour probably, probably like 30 minutes. And I read it over and over again. And every time I came to this one verse, and I want to read it to you. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 27, it says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and flawless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And I kept on reading that. And I would, I would sit it to the side. And I would read it again. And every time it was like the, the scriptures was popping into my, my, my brain. And I'm like, 
God, what are you trying to do? You know, I have a plan. We had everything in order. Right? We were going to get married. We were going to have our kids. We were going to have a dog. We were going to get a house, picket fence, have two cars. You know, have a pretty good established ministry where we had our church and it was growing. And then God's like, you can have that. But you might not have me. And so for, for us, God started to break our hearts. And I remember this one time, we were at this church conference in South Carolina. It was in Greenville, South Carolina. There was a church that we were connected to called Summit Church. And they were having this conference where they were bringing in this speaker called Dwight Smith. And Dwight Smith um, is like a, a missiologist. He was you know, a church growth expert. And he was sharing about... All these different things about how we're going to grow our ministry and, you know, the things that you need to do and to, to be on mission in our community. And he was giving all these examples and I was loving it. I was eating it up. You know, I was writing notes and, you know, Hannah was too. And our whole pastoral staff was there and we were loving it. Then all of a sudden he went on a rabbit trail. Praise God for rabbit trails. <laughs> and he started sharing about how he, he had a call to adoption. And there was this crazy story, and I don't remember all the details really of the story, but I remember it involved an airport and a child that was from another country. And for some reason, the adoption fell through. And here was this lonely orphan that needed someone to adopt them. And here was Dwight Smith and his family just there at the right moment. And they became friends with this orphan, and, and through some crazy miraculous thing he ended up adopting this this child and then he was like okay and back to church growth all right <laughs> and I'm like what what just happened so I made this note adopt question mark so we were on our way home we were living in South Carolina in Seneca South Carolina we were on our way home to visit family for the weekend I got in the car, and I typically do this whenever me and Hannah are together, and we've been at a conference of some kind, and I always say, what did the Lord say to you at this conference? And she looked at me and said, I feel like God is calling us to adopt. <laughs> and I looked at him in the driver's side. I was afraid you were going to say that. Because <laughs> God said the exact same thing to me. He was speaking out of Scripture. He was speaking through other people. We went home. Every single person that we shared, my family members, we called people up that were mentors of ours who were, you know, living according to, to God that we went to for all kinds of things. And every single one of them said, have you ever considered fostering to adopt? What does that mean? <laughs> See, for us, me and Hannah, we, we'd always dreamed of adoption. We knew that we were going to adopt. We, we, had that, we have a heart for kids. There's no denying that. Before we were even married, we, we, had, we loved kids. But our plan was biological and then adopt. And so here God is. He takes our, our own plan and changes it. <laughs> 
you know, throws it out. Yeah, exactly. And he gives us a much beautiful plan. We never thought about fostering to adopt, but we did. That's not the avenue that everybody takes. And it's not the avenue that I recommend to everybody. But God was shaping us and molding our hearts for those who are orphaned in our community. They were shaping our hearts for those who, um, around the world that were orphaned. There's 140 million children worldwide who are considered orphaned in our world. Stateside, I think there's like 500,000 the last time I checked that are considered orphan in our community. If just one person in the church worldwide would adopt, it would take care of that orphan crisis. But greed, politics, cowardness, selfishness, all get in the way of those decisions. And so then God said to us, you're going to adopt these are the avenues. We went into foster care at 22 and 23 years old, and people were like, you're young. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, we are. Um, and there was you know, people there that had been in it for years, and they gave us wisdom. And so fast forward to now, here's a picture of us. <laughs> That's our family. And these two kids, Liliana and Paulina, Get to share a journey together and share their adoption stories with one another. And when people come to us, because let's be real, people say, oh, when did you adopt Lily? Paylina will step in and say, actually, I'm adopted too. And they get to just share that bond with one another. And I'm not, I'm not sure um, you know, if there, there's a prettier family. I'm sorry, I'm biased here. <laughs> you know, God just does amazing things when you're loyal to His vision, when you're loyal to His plan and not your own. And so then, a couple years later, we were still in the middle of our, our adoption process with both girls. I went and visited a, a place that has become dear to my heart, and I still have connections to this location. I went to Haiti. This was after the devastation that happened. And now they're going through the same thing right now. And I went and I, I met um, several people there. But we went to an orphanage. And God said, yes, you're to be loyal to my vision of adopting. But you're also to be an advocate for the rest of your life. And I ended up meeting this little boy, Misha. And he broke my heart. He came right up to me. The kids in the orphanage were singing all kinds of songs of praise in their native language. And then they would sing it back in America, American, and, um, or English rather. And we would all sing. It was just beautiful. But I had to go back. And I'll never see him again, probably. Is he adopted? I don't know. But it pierced my heart. It broke my heart that I couldn't take every single one of them home with me. Or that I couldn't find a family there for them to, that, to take them in. My friend who was a missionary there 
when he first moved to the area, a woman come with their baby, and it was right after the devastation, and handed him her baby and says, take her back with you because I can't care for her like I need to, but I know you can. And it breaks my heart to hear stories like that. And there's stories like this all over the world. And I think that the church is the answer. Are we advocating for those who we might not ever see? Are we advocating for those who are the vulnerable? Those who are voiceless, the fatherless? I challenge us to be loyal to God's vision. To loyal to love one another like Christ loves us. Loyal to God's vision of a global church. A global people that are following the way. My Haitian brothers and sisters are still teaching me about what it looks like to live for Christ. And these are brothers and sisters that are living on a dollar a day. If you're wealthy in that society, you're living on two dollars a day. Can you imagine that? So love loyalty. Love mercy. Then lastly, it says to walk humbly. In the um, Jewish way of life then, there was a, a, a word for that, that led to walk humbly. A word for that was a word that really helped guide their ethics. And it meant to walk the idea for that task of ethics is, just, is really how one is to walk day in and day out. They allow this ethic to guide them everywhere that they go, day in and day out, to walk humbly. See, we don't have a lot of people that always walk humbly in our society. There is people that walk in a way that is to oppress people. To put power over people. To deny access to things. And for us as a church, we're to walk humbly. We're called to, to follow God. And to walk with Him. Jesus calls us out to follow Him. But yet people in the church in America are simply just believing Jesus. We're called to follow the way. Not just believe the way. The demons, the principalities can believe God. There's a difference from believing to following. If you follow God, if you follow Jesus, if you walk humbly in the way, then you are going to believe. Because it comes together. So basically, walking humbly means to not just talk the talk, but to walk the walk. Pastor Anthony and I, we've been hanging out for years now, but I remember one conversation that changed my life forever. I think it was about 2011 or 2012, we were eating up there at Uncle Buck's. And I remember this because of the question that he posed. And Pastor Anthony is great with questions, is he not? He loves to ask the right questions. And at that point in time, he says, Dustin, if there is not a reality of an afterlife, will you still follow Jesus? If there was not an afterlife, 
would you still follow Jesus? Uh, it was hard to answer that. Because in my mind, I, don't, I, I didn't separate things like that. But the reality is, is that because of Jesus and what He has done in our life, we should say yes. Because following Him is following a way that leads to life and leads to truth and leads to people being full and flourishing in life. And so following Him brings about resurrection. Following Him brings about life and life to the full. So how do we follow God? How do we follow Him in a messed up world? Micah lived that out. The Israelites lived that out. All throughout the story of God, you see people having to live out this reality and following Jesus in the midst of of painful times, in, in the midst of times where their life was at risk. Thinking about what's going on in our day and age, especially whenever it comes to politics, makes me think about one of my favorite presidents throughout history. Of course, I didn't vote for him because I wasn't alive. He's actually considered one of the least favorite of all presidents in our presidential history. But I love him because of what he's done after his presidency. Even more than I love what he did during his presidency. In 2002, former President Jimmy Carter was asked a question. What is the greatest challenge facing humankind in the 21st century? It's a year after you know, the, the World Trade Centers came down. And there was many things that he could have answered with. And you, we can begin to list them. But he answered this. The answer to that question, the greatest challenge facing humankind in the 21st century is the growing gap between the rich and the poor. The growing gap between the rich and the poor. He continues on to answer the questions by giving an example. He points out that people in the 10 wealthiest countries are now 75 times richer than those who live in 10 of the poorest countries. Think about that. 10 wealthy countries are now 75 times richer than the 10 poorest countries. Lord, help us. And that is increasing every year. And it's not just between nations. It's also within them. If you look within our own country, there is a great divide when it comes between the rich and the poor. He goes on to say, the results are deeply rooted cause for most of the world's unresolved problems. Problems such as starvation, illiteracy, environmental degradation, violent conflicts, unnecessary illnesses. All of that he could have shared. He could have shared any given one of those because there's stats that go to every one of them. World hunger, 
But he went after an answer that was deeply rooted in a lot of the injustice in our world. The rich become richer. The poor become poorer. It made me think of what was going on in the days of Micah. And it still continued to go on in the days here. Where there's 140 million orphans in the world. Where in the past 40 years, the U.S. prison population has increased over 800% since the war on drugs. And it's troubling to see how there's so much injustice around the race in that. For the same causes, a black man will go and spend a lifetime in prison where because I'm white, I might do the exact same thing, but yet I'm released early. Going on to share a little bit more of the stats. In, in January 2015, 564,000 people were homeless on a given night in the United States. And out of that number, 206,000 were people and families. And 358,000 were individuals. About 15% of that population, 883,000 people are considered Chronically homeless individuals. We live in a community there where we'll leave this church right now. And chances are we're going to pass a homeless person on our way home. I work at Chick-fil-A. We're constantly having homeless people come in and out of our bathrooms. I've had to knock on a door for a homeless man who's actually, I can tell what was going on. And I hear water splashing in the, the stall. And he's cleaning himself with the water of the toilet. That was his form of a bath that day. And it broke my heart. Going on. There is 10 to 30 million slaves in the world. There is more slaves in this world than ever in this world's history. Labor slaves, sex slaves, you name it. Yesterday, 26,000 plus kids died from pre pre preventable causes related to poverty. 26,000 are dying today because of causes that could have been prevented if they weren't living in poverty. Going on, death penalty. We're a nation that still kills its own people. Crazy. And then going on, one in nine people in this world are considered hungry. As 795 million people in this world do not have enough food to, to lead a healthy life. So they're starving. When people are starving, how can they learn? When people are starving, how can they go out and get a job and provide for their family? When people are starving, how can they, their body fight off common um, you know, sicknesses? So now a common cold can now kill someone because of their body is hungry. 
And to end the list of stats that, stats that can go on and on and on, I want to talk about one that is dear to our heart here. On Sunday, Martin Luther King said it's the most segregated time of the week. Going on with a stat. If you look at the evangelical church, it says that 70 or 80% of their time is spent with those in our local church. If you think about it being the, the, the most segregated time in the week, not only a week, it's, we're living in a, in a segregated lifestyle. And I love that, that we don't live that. That we break bread together. That we love one another. Right? And I think that, that we need to be a model to those in our community. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Now. Every one of those things that Jesus or that uh, Micah was saying to the people of Israel were things that were to be done in the present. He wasn't talking about the past, he wasn't talking about the future. He was saying, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly in the now, in the present. You see, we have two different type people. Sorry, this is not very bright. We have people that live in the past. And they can be considered, you know, victims. Romantics. Right, they tend to, to talk about the past often. Talking about, you know, the things of the past and things of past that happened to them. And, and that's a reality. Like, it's, it's truth there. Like, that is, that is stuff that is real. Then there's also those that live in the future. Right, these are the planners in life. Those are the afterlifers, right? They want to have... Uh, Everything in order. You know, they're, they're talking about, you know, I'm ready to go to heaven. Right? I have everything in order. Right? I have my bank account in order. My life insurance policy in order. And they tend to live here. But I believe that God is calling us as, as people to live here. To live here. In the present. Sorry. To live in the present. To live in between. To look at our past. Sure. Things happen to us. To help shape us. Maybe there's times in your life where you need to repent of your past. And not necessarily forget your past. I'm not saying that. But then there's also things, you know, where, yeah, we need to think about our future. But do we need to dwell on our future? No. We need to live in the middle. Living in the middle helps us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. So how should we respond? What does God want from me and what does God want from you? The answer here is given to go step 
by step, living with God and living with others and acting as advocates for powerless and showing care for those who are hurting and who need help. The end, King says, Martin Luther King says, the end is uh, reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of beloved community. I think that we as a body here today, are starting to see that lived out. Going on, the kingdom of God, which Christ spoke of, was one that w- with which the poor, the sick, the grieving, the crippled, the slave, women, children, widow, orphan, lepers, strangers, the least of these would be lifted up, embraced by God. And so... As we prepare for an America that Trump campaigned for, the church will probably have to step into a role that God designed her to be. We'll navigate through that and what that looks like. But we, there's no doubt about it that we will have to stand up for the oppressed. And I'm saying that too I said Trump campaigned for, but the reality is is that no matter who was there, we'd still have to stand in the gap. Okay, I want to be clear about that. But more than ever now, I truly believe that we're going to have to stand in the gap. Because I've heard my friends that don't look like me, that fear for their life, that they're going to get caught up in the system, a broken system, And maybe risk being deported. I've heard my friends who are concerned about their their sons especially. Being caught up in a system and that might take their own life. Or they might fall into the pipeline to the prison system that has grown 800% since 40 years ago. Who will stand for them? We will be a body of believers that are broken for the broken families that are going to fall through that broken system. But we will stand up. And we will be a church that will act justly, will love mercy, and will walk humbly with our God. I pray that you join us. God, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for this revelation. I thank you for teaching us to to act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. God, I pray that ourselves and our desire would not get in the way of the plan that you have for us as individuals, of the plan that you have for us as a community. And God, that we would just walk with you and love you and be loyal to you and to be you to our friends, be you to our family, be you to this community. Be the hands and feet of, our, of Jesus to everyone, including our enemies. God, that we would call out sins. We would call out injustice in a world that is broken. In a world, in a, in a nation, God, that it has broken systems. God, help us to be, bring us knowledge so that we can help fall in the gaps. God, help us to live in the presence and not just dream of the, of the future of how it's going to be in heaven. And God, help us not to dwell on the things of the past, God, 
but help us to be you right now.